Matthew um, chapter 5 and verse 3, Jesus said this. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A few verses later, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When he's talking about persecution for righteousness, he's, talking, he's not talking about people who are strutting around trying to show off their righteousness, right? Trying to, you know, protest, hey, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing... He's not talking about that. The righteousness he's talking about is those who actually understand that their righteousness comes from Jesus and not through their attempt to do good works. And the persecution that was coming upon people was because they were letting go of the old covenant law system where, you know, you tried to qualify yourself by obeying a whole lot of religious laws and you put your faith in Jesus. And there was a lot of persecution that was coming against that early church, not from outsiders, but from within the Jewish community. Okay? But here's the point. The point is, heaven is promised. I tried to find a picture, and that's... It's a bit corny, isn't it? It is. It's a bit corny. It's kind of not in keeping with what I like to put up there, but I couldn't find anything else. So if you've got a really good picture of heaven, who's ever been there? Who's going? Ah, <laughs> that's an easier question to answer, isn't it? But so, so the persecution, it's not saying you've got to be whipped in order to inherit heaven, okay? It's not, it's not saying that thing at all. A few weeks ago, well, the last two weeks, we looked at um, just different aspects of Jesus' return, his second coming, right? And we looked at, we didn't want to look at all the controversial stuff that people kind of, all the ifs and buts and everything else and all the, you know, supposition. We just specifically looked at some key things that the Bible says will happen. So Jesus is going to come back visibly. It's going to be loud. Everyone's going to know about it. You and I are going to be lifted up as a welcoming party as he comes. Our physical body, if, you're, if you've died, you're, physical, you're going to get a brand new physical body. If you're still alive when Jesus comes back, then, then in a, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, Split second, you are going to get changed and transformed so that your body is going to be exactly like Jesus' resurrected body. Isn't that good news? For everyone who's got aches and pains and all the stuff that goes wrong with us, finally that day is going to come where we're going to be completely set free and totally made whole. You know, there are layers I shouldn't get sidetracked. It's your fault. You always do. You make me do this. We, we read in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 where it talks about us being caught up to meet Jesus. Remember we, we read that? I explained what all of that was. But there are layers of truth. There are depths of truth in Scripture. And if you're running a race, someone's in front of you, and you run really fast, and what, what happens? You catch up to that person, right? So in a very real sense, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Jesus 
as the resurrected Lord was the first fruits of what was to come. In other words, he's the first of many. Right? And so in a very real sense, there's this thing of, of when our bodies are transformed into immortal, incorruptible bodies, we have caught up to Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? You don't become God, but you have caught up to the perfect image of Jesus. That's, that's actually exciting. It's, a whole, it's a, just a different way of looking at things. All right, let me get back on track. Okay. Yep, keep me on track, Stewie. Thanks. I know you keep looking at your watch. <laughs> Is it a new watch? <laughs> All right, so what I want to look at over the next two weeks maybe is heaven. Heaven. Because Jesus has come for a purpose. He came to die so that we would become citizens of heaven. He's returning to take us to heaven. So the Bible talks about three heavens. I think I, we, we, I answered this question the other day at a Wednesday night study, I think. Um, but there are three heavens. Paul talks about, um, uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, um, I knew a man, he's talking about himself, who was caught up to the third heaven. He, now, he gives it a number, to the third heaven. That means there's got to be at least two other heavens, doesn't it? Logic. The first heaven the Bible describes as the heavens that are around us. You look up, you're looking into the sky. You see clouds, birds flying. That's, the, that's this first heaven. It's the atmosphere around us. It extends, what, about 25 miles, I think, is the Earth's atmosphere above the Earth. And it just becomes this space. So the first heaven is what surrounds us. It's the atmosphere around us. The second heaven, there is a little bit of debate over what the second heaven is. Um, some people say that it's the spiritual atmosphere around us. So it's that realm where kind of angels and demons fly around in around us. So it's a spiritual kind of atmosphere around us. And so there is, there is some evidence of that in Scripture. But the other, the other opinion is this, is that that second heaven is space, outer space. Bible talks about the fact that the stars are in the heavens, right? So it's, a, it's further afield than this immediate atmosphere that we are in. Uh, David writes in the Psalms that the heavens declare the glory of God. And scientists have shown us that actually the stars and the planets actually um, emit sounds. So there's this, this, this song that is coming from the heavens declaring the glory of God. It's not just that we look up and we go, oh, that's pretty. No, it's more than that. It's actually, there's a sound, there's a resonance that is happening. And then there's the third heaven, which is what Paul talks about, and that's the heaven of God. That is the, that dwelling place of God. All right, so you understand that? So there's three, so there's no confusion there amongst us. Um, there's been many people who kind of had, uh, have related experiences where they say they've gone to heaven. 
I think some of those are credible. Um, I think some you've got to be very careful with. So be careful with it in terms of what you read and what you listen to and what you take in that people say. In fact, Paul later on in one of his letters, he actually, I can't remember which one it is, but he actually says to them, he says, be very careful with people who get caught up in their own personal visions of heaven. He actually gives a warning. People who start to worship angels and they come up with all of these ideas of the things that they say they see in heaven. And I've read and listened to people who talk like that and some of them you say, yep, that lines up perfectly with what we know from Scripture and I, and I, can, I can accept that. I'm not going to build a theology on it, but I can accept that. But there are others who come up with some very convoluted, strange things that are clearly not portrayed in Scripture. And what you find when you dig a little bit deeper, it's just their personal ministry. All they're doing is promoting their personal ministry, trying to sell another book, trying to sell another CD, and drawing attention to themselves with some pretty grandiose claims. And... You know, part of my job is to actually keep us on track, warn us, just don't get caught up with some of those things. But there are some that have credibility. Always check something against Scripture. Always check it against the nature, the character of God, and what the Bible declares. And if there's any deviation, even if it's just the slightest thing, just put it to one side, all right? So, as we did last, the last couple of weeks, I want to just look at some things in terms of what the Bible says about heaven and not try and surmise, not, not look at ifs and buts, not look at, okay, maybes, just look at specifically what does the Bible say. So, here's some things that we do know about heaven. Number one, it's a real place. <laughs> it's a real place place it's not a it's not the figment of someone's imagination it has a real physical presence how do we know that how do we know that heaven has an actual physical presence jesus rose with a physical body right he was seen he was touched he ate food and drank after he rose again. He had a physical body to do that. And then he ascended with a physical body somewhere. That means he had to go to somewhere that had a physical presence. Right? So heaven is real. It's very diff- very, a very definite place. Um, what, we call, what we call miracles, signs and wonders, those kinds of things, all that is is just something of the reality of heaven breaking into a natural world. That's the experience. Man, this is something of heaven. Someone gets healed of cancer. That is heaven breaking into their physical body and bringing heaven's atmosphere, the glory of God, the power of God, into someone's physical body and they get healed because cancer cannot stand, it has no authority when it's compared to the authority of Jesus. Amen? Amen? 
So what is heaven? How do we know it's real? Let me just give you a few things. If this works, should have just put them up one at a time because I know you're going to speed read and go through them all while I'm talking. But there you go. There's some things. That's, that scripture specifically tells us this is heaven. This is what heaven's like. Number one, it's the abode of God. It's where God has his throne. We know that God is everywhere, but the Bible does tell us that heaven is also where God resides. It's where he has his throne. We pray the prayer, our heavenly Father. Right? So we know God is in heaven. Uh, Isaiah 66 verse 1 says, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. When, when Jesus was uh, warning people about the seriousness and sometimes the foolishness of making oaths or vows, um, he said this in Matthew 5, he says, Do not break your vow. You must carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. Don't make any vow if you say, by heaven. If you say, by heaven, understand this. It is a sacred vow because heaven is God's throne. A, a throne is a seat of authority. It's the seat of power. When we give rule to God in our, in our lives, then his throne is here. I mentioned that this morning. When, when Jesus is truly Lord of our life, when, when, he come, when we allow him to come and actually sit on the throne of our heart, you know what happens? Something of heaven has just invaded your life. And that's why Jesus can say, hey, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has come, and then he makes a startling statement. He says, the kingdom of heaven is in you. Just think about that. The kingdom of heaven is in you. And yet how many Christians just walk around and go through life, oh, woe is me, woe is me. Don't you know the kingdom of heaven is in you? Paul writes in where? Colossians chapter 2, I think it is. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says that we have been given the Holy Spirit, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our internal inheritance. Guys, heaven is in you. The kingdom is in you. You know what most of us do with those kinds of statements? Is that we have them as our nice little theology. We package them up, we stick them in a box, and we put them up on the top shelf. Well, this is my position. My, my position is that I'm in Christ. My, my, my position is that I'm 
Paul says in Ephesians 2, I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ. And so we're happy. We keep that as a nice little theology up here. But we get a bit nervous in applying it and actually living from that place in practical reality. And if all you've got is a theology that is purely theory, does you no good at all. What's the point? Because what it means is you're not, you're not going to actually enjoy, you're not going to experience, you're not going to know any of the reality of that until you die and go to heaven. And Jesus didn't come and die just to give us a ticket into heaven in some distant future time. He came to get heaven into us so that we can enjoy that realm now. So you can't just have a theology that sits up on the top shelf. You have to have a theology that actually begins to manifest in your life and become reality. Are you with me? That's what we have on our little logo thing. Freedom Life. Releasing heaven on earth. That would never happen if we don't actually believe heaven is in us and can actually begin to come out of us. We'll always be looking for, oh God, please come, please come, please come and do something over there. And he said, actually, I've put something in you that actually needs to get out. That's why I believe so much of, of prayers that get prayed in prayer meetings all over the world in churches are faithless prayers because we're asking God to do something that he said, I've commissioned you to do. And so we sit back and the prayer becomes an excuse for something not happening because we're waiting for God to do what he has called us to do. Hello? Sorry if that treads on someone's toes, but it's true. It's true. Number two, it's where Jesus came from and it's where he ascended to. Luke 24, 51 says, While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. People saw it. They saw him going up into heaven. They knew where he was going. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Heavens. Passed through the heavens. That means he came up through this atmosphere, ascended into this atmosphere, through this atmosphere, through another heaven, to a location, to somewhere. It is real. How many of you know the Bible doesn't lie? <laughs> Acts 1 verse 11 says, This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. So it's where Jesus went. It's where he ascended to. It's where he is also, number three, seated there in power. It's a throne of authority. Hebrews 9 verse 24 says, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear in God's presence. Heaven is synonymous with God's presence. 
So when Jesus says, hey guys, the kingdom of heaven is in you, that means God's presence is in you. Our dilemma is that most of the time we live, we go through every day not aware of his presence that resides in us. It was a bit of a to and fro with a friend of mine on his blog site just this last week um, where he was making a statement of just the power of the word in our life. And I, I made a comment and I said, if we could just understand that the reality of the word dwells in us, that as we read it with our own eyes, as we hear it with our own ears, that's why sometimes it's good to actually find a quiet place, read your Bible aloud. Who, whoever does that? Some of you do. It's incredibly powerful. But most of us just read it silently. I wonder why. Can I let you in on a little secret that's a kind of a little knife twist? Most of us read it silently because we're a little bit embarrassed. What if someone comes in and hears me? <laughs> we need to read it aloud sometimes. Hear, see it with your own eyes. Hear it with your own ears. And as you do, there's something that happens in your spirit where that word begins to come up into your mind. And Paul says in Romans 12 that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. You already have the perfect word in your spirit. It's why John writes in Second uh, John 2.20, is that right, Kay? That we have an anointing within us that teaches us all things. Now, he's not saying that you don't need teachers, because we do. Elsewhere, Scripture clearly tells us. But he's saying there's an anointing in you that recognizes truth. How is that possible? Because truth is already resident in you, but is so often locked down and squashed down because we're actually not drawing from it. And we're not reading the Bible with the Holy Spirit. I love what Smith Wigglesworth says. He says, some people like to read the Bible in Greek. Some people like to read it in Hebrew. I like to read it with the Holy Spirit. And that's so good. And it's actually so important because the Holy Spirit makes it alive to you. He pulls it up. He draws that truth. So when you read something on a page, something in your spirit identifies with it. Why? Because you've already got that truth in your spirit. And it bubbles up and it comes into your mind and it changes the way that you think. I'm writing a little, I've been writing a whole bunch of little books. Stuart, I'm getting sidetracked. <laughs> You're placing your next bet. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm writing a whole little series of books, just little books, 30 pages each, roughly, on a whole lot of things, on understanding grace, because that's really needed. People need to understand the depth of grace and how it affects all of our doctrine, grace and salvation. Grace and eternal security. Grace and baptism. People have some mixed ideas about what water baptism is about. They need to actually understand the truth of it 
through the filter of Jesus and an understanding of God's grace. So I've done a whole lot. I'm right in the middle at the moment on doing one grace and repentance. Grace and repentance. Because most people's idea of repentance is I'm going to feel really, really bad and get, you know, really feel guilty, feel really bad, and I've got to get to such a point that I'm going to turn from that horrible sin. I'm going to make sure I turn from it because I've learned to hate it so much. I'm going to turn away from it, and I'm going to ask God to forgive me. And that's the general view of what repentance is. That's what people think. It's even written in the dictionaries like that. That's not what repentance is. I want to teach on this someday because I think it's important. So the emphasis has always been on you've got to turn away from sin. That's what repentance is. And it's not. Do you know the Pharisees turned away from sin every day? And Jesus says you're dead in your unrighteousness. They thought that turning from sin was going to make them righteous. And it never did. Because the emphasis isn't on turning from sin. The emphasis is on turning to Jesus. And if you turn to Jesus, what happens here? What automatically happens if you turn to Jesus? Because Jesus and sin are diametrically opposed. They're 180 degrees apart. So if I turn to Jesus, if the emphasis is on turning to Jesus, I've automatically turned from sin. And that's why Paul says in Romans, it's the, great, it's the um, goodness of God. That leads people to repentance. So I'm writing a whole book so that it's going to be controversial because people are going to really, they're going to challenge that because it just cuts across so much of what people think. And so the word for repent is the Greek word metanoia, which doesn't mean turn away from at all. Can't find that in any of its definitions. Metanoia means to change your mind to change the way you think specifically about Jesus. And so when we change our mind about Jesus, when we behold him, when we see him for who he truly is, man, there's a change that starts happening. Something happens in your heart. And so your mind gets renewed and you get transformed. How do, but it's because you've, when you receive him, he puts in the truth of his word into you. That's why we need to feed on the word because you can't remember what's in your spirit. You just, you got to, you know, we just got to keep reading it. We just got to keep seeing it, allowing our minds to connect with what's in our spirit and see transformation take place. All right? Good. I got sidetracked. But that was worth it. So Jesus is seated in heaven in power. Heaven is, is synonymous with God's presence. It's his sanctuary. Hebrews 10 verse 12 said this. This man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He sat down on a throne. What does a throne represent? Authority. It represents power. When I 
mentioned it before, Ephesians 2, verse uh, 4 and 5, somewhere around there, says that you and I are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If, you, if he is seated at the right hand of the Father on a throne of authority and power and you are in Christ, what does that mean for you? You're seated at the right hand of the Father. In fact, in Revelation, this is, this is mind-blowing because in the book of Revelation it says this. It says, he who overcomes, have you overcome? Or are you trying to? We've overcome through Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors already. Don't measure it by your behavior. Don't measure it by some of the mistakes you make. Measure it by what Scripture says. So you're already an overcomer. And so he says this, to he who overcomes, if you're in Christ, you're already an overcomer, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Not a separate one. Not in the, in the back stalls a thousand miles away from the throne of God to sit with me on my throne. Folks, that's, that's mind-blowing. That, that's mind-blowing. Well, if that's true, that has to be true for every believer. That's a big throne. <laughs> hey? It, it, but we get, we get stuck in our natural way of thinking and we think, that oh, can't be possible. Can't be possible. God can't be that good. He can't be that generous. But he is. He is. Irrespective of how you feel, he is. And even, even if you struggle to believe it, doesn't mean it's not true. It just means you need to catch up. <laughs> you need to catch up to truth. And that's what this whole Christian journey is. That's what our whole Christian walk is. It's not trying to make yourself perfect. It's actually catching up to the reality of what Jesus says. It's catching up to the promises of God. It's catching up to what he says about you. What has this got to do with heaven? I don't know. <laughs> But it's good. I used, to get, I used to be so nervous and so worried about anything that came out of my mouth when I preached. But now I'm so confident that the Holy Spirit is always with me, that it isn't me speaking. It is the Holy Spirit. And that's why I love to preach truth. Because when we get truth, Jesus didn't say when you hear truth, it'll set you free. He didn't say when you read truth, you'll set, it'll set you free. He said when you know truth. And that word know means when you become fully convinced. 
when you get revelation and you become fully convinced of truth, then it will set you free. We get a lot of people walking around and they profess truth. They say they know truth, but all you can actually hear is their chains clanking because they're still bound by unbelief because they haven't had revelation where they've been convinced of truth. And that's why I'm so passionate about preaching grace and about preaching the reality of the new covenant because it is the only, and that is Jesus, all right? Grace is not a theology, grace is Jesus. The new covenant is Jesus. The, le- the new covenant is a legal document. Is a legal document that is attached to you for eternity. It's not a piece of paper. That legal document is Jesus. And he will never let you go. In fact, Paul says that if you link yourself to Jesus, then you become one spirit. Not one in spirit, not one in agreement, not one in ideas, not one in religion, one spirit. And that's why eternal life is eternal. Because the only way you can lose eternal life once you're in Christ is his spirit has to die. Because it's one spirit with yours. Let's catch up. We're going to catch up to Jesus. We're going to catch up to truth. Because that's what sets us free. I'm still on page two. I need to catch up. So Jesus is seated in a place of authority. And you and I are in Christ. And that means there's an authority that you can walk with. There's an authority that you have. Ephesians 1 says that all things placed under his feet. He is the head of the church. He has all authority for the church. All things are under his feet. We are the body. He is the head. You've got the feet. It means all things are under your feet. I wonder how many of us are living like that. I I can't say I am. Because there's days I still have doubts. There's days that I still do stuff wrong. But I'm learning to live with all things under my feet. Amen? Number four. It's where angels live. Ah. Angels are real. We're not to worship them. In actual fact, Hebrews says that angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to the sons of God, to you and I. We should never worship angels. 
But I think we need to be a little bit more conscious, con conscient, conscious that they are around us and are with us. I've shared before, I won't go on all the details again, but I'll share you before, with you that there's um, at least four occasions, probably five occasions, where I should be dead. I should have died. And I was saved by God with an angel. Just stepped in. Protect you. We should be more conscious of angels around us. Not worshipping them, not running around trying to find one, you know, not, not trying to name your personal angel. <laughs> I have people who do that. But we do need to be more aware. In fact, it says in Hebrews, some of you have entertained angels and you haven't even realised it. They've come and actually ministered to you and you haven't realised it. You haven't noticed it. And he's not talking in some ethereal, ghostly thing, you know, where it's a, where there's an angel around you and, you know, you can't see it. That's why you're not aware. No, he's actually saying angels have come physically to you as a person and you haven't recognised it, but they've ministered life to you. Remember Jacob's dream? Genesis 28 has this dream and he says when he wakes up he kind of explains what the dream is and he says I saw a ladder that stretched between heaven and earth and at the top I saw the son of God Jesus and I saw angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth going back what were they doing? They're on assignment from God to minister to you. And he says this, he makes this statement at the end. He says, surely this is the gate of heaven. And I didn't realize it. I didn't realize it. Now, don't go looking for a natural ladder. Don't go looking for some escalator to heaven. All right, where's the angel? I'm waiting, I'm waiting. The ladder is Jesus. He's the connection between heaven and earth. So if you've got Jesus in you, what can you expect? You can expect the company of angels. Oh, I love the word of God. Huh? Don't you? Who's heard this before? Not one. Come on. You must have. Let's try and finish this last one. Number five. It has been seen with human eyes. Heaven has been seen with human eyes. Stephen, regarded as the first Christian martyr, a man who didn't have any official title, but who was preaching the word of God with power because he understood what it was to have Jesus with him. 
And so there were miracles, signs and wonders through his prayer. Many people got saved. But the high priests, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees of the day, they hated him. And so they arrested him one day and they bring him to trial with the intention of stoning him to death for what they determined was blasphemy. And so they're about to throw these stones and he starts preaching to them. And they get angrier and angrier because one of the things he says, he has this open vision where he looks into heaven and he sees Jesus. And he tells them, he's game enough to tell them. Now they get even more angry. They pick up stones ready to throw him. He says, I saw into heaven, I saw Jesus. And he says this, I saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And yet we read elsewhere, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is Jesus standing? He's looking down at Stephen. He's looking down at his unshakable testimony. And I know people have a whole lot of different ideas as to what it means and what it was. I just have this picture of Jesus standing and applauding. Well done. Well done. Every time we make a stand for Jesus, I think Jesus stands. So Jesus, Stephen sees into heaven. Paul saw into heaven. John, in the book of Revelation, the whole book is him seeing into heaven, having a vision of what it is like. So our time is almost gone and we haven't even opened the Bible and read anything. <laughs> uh, what should we do? Is that enough for today? Have I given you enough to meet to go home with? I'd love to just start to read a few verses about what John sees in heaven and, 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 and the way that he describes it. But you can do that as some homework for this week and get ready because next week we'll look at some of what John describes in uh, well let me add let me add some extras for you read Revelation chapter 4 Revelation chapter 4 and then we'll look next week at Revelation 21 okay so you can read those, just read those two chapters and if you want to keep reading the rest of it read it but, but those two Okay? Heaven's going to be glorious. Amen? And it's not a holiday place you go to. It is your permanent home. And as we'll see when we actually start to look at it, it's not in some far distant corner of the universe. It's actually going to be here. So read those scriptures. Read Revelation 4, read Revelation 21, and we'll have a look at it again next week. All right?
God bless you. We want to we want to do communion today. I'm so I've been hanging out and hanging out to be able to be able to do this for so long, and now now they're starting to lift some of the restrictions. We can, I think, fairly confidently say, yeah, let's let's do this again. We do have some people away today. Um, with sickness, Bill and Lena are not well. Leo and Roz are not well. Paul and Bernadette still not well. Um, most of you know Diane um, and Dan used to come, but he's been in a nursing home for quite some time. He passed away last night, so we want to pray for Diane and the family as well. And I just thought communion would be a great opportunity for us to do that, a great time for us to do that. So why don't you come and, uh, and grab something here or if I can have some people come and just serve us, walk around and serve us, that would be great. Four people or three people or two people, whatever we need. Thanks. Thanks, Stewie. because of what Jesus did on the cross. And this is a reminder of what he did for us on that cross, that he shed his blood, that he suffered the pain upon his body, that, that in some, we don't understand how it works, but somehow God takes all of mankind's sin from the beginning of time to the end of time and he draws it all together and he placed it upon Jesus. And in his death, he dealt with our sin. He took the punishment for all sin, for all mankind, for all time. And that's what the new covenant is about. It's about Jesus taking that sin. But it didn't end there. Because even though he died and was placed in a grave, you know, his, the other thing that his death signified was that sin died for you. He rose again. And that gives us great hope for the future. In his resurrection, in his death and in his resurrection, he opened a way for us to have heaven as our eternal destiny. And that's what we commemorate. It's what we remember through this table. But it's also a table of healing. It's a table of peace. It's a table that reinforces the fact that he has made us righteous. There, there is so much wonderful truth in these emblems. There's healing for those among us who are sick. Uh, so Jesus, we pray for all of those right now who are, who are battling with their health at the moment. Think of Leon and Roz and Paul and Bernadette and Bill and Lynn and, and others who are Billy, who's struggling with, with just all of these sicknesses, these viruses and different things that come upon them. Others, Father, who are not here this morning because of sickness. Uh, Lucian is not here because of, because of a throat virus. Father, we think of of others in our extended families who may be living in other cities and towns. 
Father, we, we just lift every single one of them up before you. And we thank you for the power of the cross. And we declare the power of the cross over them this morning in Jesus' name. And we just speak healing and wholeness to every one of them. Father, we pray for Diane, for her family. Lord, with the, the passing of Dan, we thank you, Jesus, that he knew you and that we know where he is. He's enjoying heaven right now. We thank you that, that we have that confidence, Father, that comes from you. But we pray for them because we also know that the reality of the emotional pain and sense of loss that comes. And so we pray for your peace, that the comfort of the Holy Spirit would surround them, would just come and embrace them right now, that your peace would just flow over them in Jesus' name. And so, Lord, this morning, we, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood. And we partake of these emblems. We become partakers in your life that flows to us because of your sacrifice. So we thank you, Jesus. So go ahead, just eat. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that there's life in this cup, there's life in that bread. Thank you, Jesus, for the incredible promise of heaven, of eternal life. What a future we have to look forward to. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for just the preciousness of your word, that we can just look at it simply, not be confused by it, but allow the life that is in those pages, in those words, to become life to us, that we are encouraged, that we are lifted, that we are envisioned, that we are empowered to just stay faithful to you, with an expectation that the power and authority that you declare is now ours because of Jesus would begin to flow through our lives every single day, that we would become more and more aware of your presence with us, even angelic hosts that are with us, walking with us every day. Let us become more and more aware of the reality of that spirit realm that you created us for. And we thank you for these things in Jesus.